Hello, this is Beth Maples Bays, and this is Lesbian Echoes, a podcast about older lesbians from America and beyond. We hope you enjoy our podcast and listening to the stories of lesbians worldwide. Hello, and welcome to Lesbian Echoes. This is Beth, and today we have Caroline Mega with us. Mar. Mar. It's pronounced Mar. I'm so sorry. That's okay. um, I'm terrible about not asking ahead of time. Um, (laughs) If you could just tell us how old you are. I'm 61. I know I had to think, oh my goodness, yes, no, I'm 61. And, and how old were you when you came out? Um, properly, uh, about 18, when I properly came out. Yeah, I, I guess I had known that I was lesbian before then, but I never really um, acted upon it until I was um, 18. 16, 18, that's, that's still very, very young. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, um, I suppose when I first thought I might be a lesbian, I would be about 13 and 14. But I didn't want to be a lesbian because um, there were so many negative images around then. Um, the only references I could find was um, Well of Loneliness, um, so I didn't think I was an invert and I didn't think that I should die because of my inversion. And then, of course, the film The Killing of Sister George, and I didn't identify with either of the protagonists in that uh, in that movie, although I did enjoy the scenes from the Gateway Nightclub. So. <laughs> but uh, um, I, one of our PE teachers at school, she was a lesbian and was very out um, well, was living with her lesbian partner, which at that time, which was quite brave, now I think of it. But again, just the way people talked about uh, the girls were very cruel. So, um, yeah, I just thought um, that there was something wrong with me. I hadn't met the right man, um, that being lesbian was a deviancy, um, that it would sort itself out. But then when I got to 18, um, of course, it hadn't sorted itself out it was just more firmly established. And so then I went off and did some exploration. So where where were you living when you came out? I was actually in the military. So I was serving in Northern Ireland at the time. And I was, um, I'd done a training course. I'd been sent across to the UK, the mainland to do a training course. And there was some security um, problem. So the flight that I was meant to be on had been cancelled. And so I was on a layover uh, in Birmingham, of all places. So I found myself this unexpected time off in the city that I didn't know, um, where I knew no one and no one knew me. So I looked up and back then, this is before smartphones, I looked up in the phone book, lesbian and gay and found the switchboard and asked them for some addresses of clubs and pubs and whatever. 
and took myself off to a gay uh, pub. And so that was the very first time I was ever in a gay pub. And it was the very first time I kissed a woman. And I kissed a woman and I liked it. So that, <laughs> that was me coming out as gay. And I, I, I must, I, I didn't hear, what year was that? That was in 1978. 1978, the year I came yeah. out. That was a yeah. good year. It was a good year. <laughs> Must have been something in the water. So, so you think that you came out um, because, just because of your own internal feelings? Or were there any, any women or others who influenced you in any way? Not then. Not then, not, um, not at that time, because the army was very anti-homosexuality. Uh, we weren't allowed to be gay in the military. Now I had, of course, I can remember as a recruit um, the year before this at the, WR, the Women's Royal Army Corps Centre in Guildford, I had seen um, I'm pretty certain lesbians, some of the, the, the permanent recruit staff there were, were gay without a doubt. Um, I can remember getting wolf whistled one evening when I went across to the local club to get some boot polish and polish for um, doing our, um, getting ready for inspection. And I can remember hearing a wolf whistle and being really quite embarrassed about it. Um, but yeah, um, I, I, at that time it, it was fearful, less than less curiosity, more fearful that I didn't identify with those people. Um, I didn't think I was one of those people, um, and there was very little activism. I'm sure there was a great feminist um, activism then, but I was in the military, so we didn't have we didn't have feminists in the military. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were, but we weren't encouraged. We weren't encouraged to be gay. We weren't encouraged to be feminists. So, um, no. So when I came out, it was more because of what was intrinsic in me. And I was aware that I was unhappy and I was aware that there was something far wrong. I had um, tried to have a and um, yeah, it just wasn't. And some of the men I was having relationships with were really nice guys but it just wasn't working for me um and then that very first time i kissed a woman it was like everything fell into place and i just knew that that was me and that was that so you were in the military um in, in northern ireland serving in northern ireland yes um, not um, for all of my career, we, we get posted around, but at that time, yeah, I was serving in, in Northern Ireland. I remember going back to Ireland after um, my, my break in Birmingham, and um, I was very close. There was a group of us who were quite close women, um, and I trusted in that environment um, and with those women and with those friends, I trusted enough to come out to them. And that was quite interesting because a couple of them said that they too were gay as well. So that was really nice that we had we had this coming out and this kind of, uh, you know, meeting other people. Um, so, yeah, um, but again, because 
it was so heavily policed there, we couldn't really act on it. Um, I did start a relationship with with one of the women, but um, what with being posted apart and with the constraints of how we were living and everything, it was very hard to maintain the relationship. So it, it, it didn't last its course. Um, but I then started a relationship um, with a local woman that I met when I went home on leave. My, my family were living in Norfolk then um, in Norwich and I'd gone home and um, now I was accustomed to gay bars. I went to the gay bars and uh, I met there a woman that I then had a relationship with for quite a number of years. Um, so just going home and staying uh, staying with her. We, we bought a house together, um, but of course we had to keep it all very quiet and everything. Um, so, and that was in the hometown where my parents were. Um, so, uh, and I suppose then that's when I started meeting um, through her and her civilian friends. That's when I started meeting activists. Um, so I met women who were which was quite funny. Well, not funny. It was quite difficult, actually, at the time. I met women who were involved in the peace camp at, um, yeah, at uh, Greenham. And um, so that was a little awkward because I was in the military and they were protesting against all things anti-military. And yet a lot of our values aligned. Yeah. Um, so there was some intersectionality in our beliefs. Um, what I found constantly, though, though, though amongst the feminist organisations, I felt we aligned up to a point, but the greatest gulf and what stopped me going all on board with um, feminism then, it was very socialist in its outlook and very anti-island. Um, and that was a big sticking point. So people didn't think that I should be in the army, let alone serving in Ireland. So that was a real big no-no for a lot of the women, um, caused a lot of dissent. And it meant then that I didn't find myself or I didn't feel myself welcomed amongst um, feminist circles there. So I would have liked to have been more political, um, but I didn't at that time. It wasn't until the eighties that I got political and that was on the back of the, um, the AIDS, yeah, um, ACT UP. Uh, and all of those campaigns there. And of course, in the UK, you'll have heard, we had good old section 28, which said that our schools weren't allowed to teach people anything at all about alternative lifestyles in case it was encouraging people to be homosexual. So section 28 or clause 28, as it was known. So I came out then um, as an activist and by that time, so we're talking about the um, mid 80s. By that time I was serving in Edinburgh uh, and I became aligned with a group of um, gay activists. Um, and we called ourselves the Scottish Homosexual Action Group just because I loved the acronym for that, SHAG. <laughs> so, and we were aligned to groups like ACT UP uh, and whatever, and we campaigned um, in the main for the repeal of Clause 28. Um, so I remember all through the 80s, they were great, lots and lots of protests, lots of marches. I'd started going to Gay Pride then, and Gay Pride was a very different beast then 
than it is now. So it was, uh, you're nodding, yeah. It, it was a real celebration of being gay. And it was very unified, women and guys together. And yes, there were more men, just because that's the way the economy works. But there were women marching shoulder and shoulder with, their, um, with the gay men. Um, and we were very, you know, united in terms of repeal the clause and in terms of the our outrage about the lack of action there had been with um, AIDS, HIV. Um, and also just celebrating having a real old party. It was before it was hugely commercial. Um, it was great. I just remember it, the energy, the fire, the passion. Yeah, the parties <laughs> and whatever. Really, really good. Um, and uh, so that was um, back then. So my primary influences then were very much um, campaigning um gay uh, lesbians and gay men um campaigning for social justice very much social justice and that's that was me then um my reading sphere had um had increased my my circle so i'd been reading um we had in edinburgh we had a lovely gay bookshop then um uh, it used to be called lavender menace and then um, they changed the name to West and Wild. And uh, I was um, a vociferous reader, so I was always in there and just going there felt so great. Yeah, and speaking to the staff and all of the books then. So I was reading, of course, things like Ruby Fruit Drungle and stuff, which was kind of going back, but I kind of missed out on that stuff. But then I was finding um, more uh, more recent lesbian authors, everything from um, dikey detectives to magic realism. Yeah, so all sorts of things I was reading. Um, and extending then my, my, my sphere of knowledge and my, my, my terms of reference. Um, I think as well then we had the lovely Desert of the Hearts. Oh, what a film that was, Desert of the Hearts. Jane Rule. Yeah, so, um, so the book and the film. So those were my influences then. We had people coming through like um, Billie Jean King and then of course the lovely, fantastic Martina. Yeah, coming through. Uh, be still my heart indeed, yes. And then finding out um, people um, like Dusty had been gay, who knew, but then that made sense, you know. So finding out all of these things. So um, building building all of the time my, my circles or um, my lines of reference, if you like. Uh, so those, I think, were my primary influences um the civilians that i was meeting with yeah so again very little contact in the army with other gay people just by the nature of, of how it was in the army so my relationships um so my prime relationship which endured for a while was with the woman that i had met on leave and that endured that relationship for about um 12 years yeah, for about 12 years. Um, uh, and we still, we still are friends, of course. Um, and some of the friends I had made campaigning, I'm friends with those still. So those friendships have endured for more than 30 years now. Yeah, when we think back, 
when I was campaigning in the 80s. So yeah, pretty much 30 plus years, those friendships have endured. Um, and uh, I wasn't fully out to the family, but I kind of figured, you know, that I'd bought a house with a woman. So I kind of think they must have realized. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then in, um, let me think, in the late 80s, um, I was investigated for being gay in the army. Yeah, I was, they finally caught up with me. I was investigated and what had happened. So I was back in Ireland doing a tour in Ireland and um, I was doing a lot of sport um, in the military at that time. Um, so I was doing triathlon and I was um, competing in triathlon, um, not just as an individual, but in team triathlon. And one of the members of the team was an officer uh, a female officer and so we used to we used to exercise work out together uh, we used to practice for the triathlon um, so we were always down the baths or running we both used to orienteer as well so we used to we used to orienteer for the military so we used to practice again so um, I was spending a lot of time with this officer um, she was quite high up in the army at that time. She was um, attached to the brigade. This was in Londonderry. Um, and she was, um, the post was adjutant. So she was the, uh, not the commanding officer of the brigade, but the, um, the military aide to the commanding officer of the brigade. So she was based at the military headquarters and I was, as a military policewoman um, and uh, a staff sergeant, I was running the, um, the women's platoon, but I was also running um, what we used to call then vehicle and weapons intelligence. So doing low level um, security grade um, uh, kind of reporting. Um, within that climate of um, terrorist um, activity. So uh, we were, um, I was living in a house at the time on the married, on the um, married quarters area of the um, base where I was working and the house I was sharing with other women, um, senior rank soldiers, just because there was, there wasn't enough accommodation for us in the um, single quarters. So we were sharing this married quarter and this particular evening, um, we had uh, a dinner in the house and we invited our officer um, who was a lieutenant uh, and she was great friends as well with my, my kind of um, team buddy, if you like. So we invited her. So we invited the two officers to the house and there were the three of us uh, women. We were all one sergeant, uh, two staff sergeants, the two officers. We had a great meal. Um, we had lots to drink. Um, everyone went off and um, the officer phoned. Once she got back to a quarter, she phoned and she said, um, come and have a party. Come and have a party. Now, I kind of figured... Um, you know, that, that was a bit of a come on to me. And um, I was also aware, as she'd phoned, I was aware of a little click on the background and somebody else listening in on a party line. So I said, no, that's not happening. Um, just, and she was saying, oh, come on, come on. I say, no, 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 you're really drunk. Come on, let's just, we've had a really great night. Let's just leave it like that. We've had a good night. Let's do nothing else. So 
I said no and I, I hung up. And um, so by then it was about four o'clock in the morning. Um, I felt, because of that, I felt very unsettled. And um, at that time I was really into parachuting. So I thought, sod it, I'm going to go because, um, so this must have been in the summer when the lights, the nights were short and uh, very early um, sunrise or whatever. I thought, sod it, I'm going to take myself up to the airfield and I'm going to see if there's any planes going up. I feel like going parachuting. Um, so that's what I did. I booked myself out uh, and took myself off and didn't think anything more about it until... One of the um, women that I was sharing a house with said, um, I think that they are looking, um, they're gonna do a witch hunt and I think that you might be in the frame. And she said, do you have anything on you yeah, that I can look, out, uh, look after for you? Um, and I, so she actually saved me from a lot of grief because I loaded up a suitcase with a lot of, um, letters and whatever and I gave them to her and she was um she had a married quarter because her husband was stationed in the UK she had a married quarter with him in the UK she was going on leave she took that suitcase for me so I thought phew if they come and find anything uh, come and search they've got nothing to to find now at that time there was an awful lot we used to call them witch hunts um, so they would come and do searches of the, the women's quarters and try and tr catch people out being gay. This particular morning I was sitting, working in my office as the staff sergeant for the platoon and the two men in suits arrived and said, uh, and I said, oh, who have you come for? Thinking they'd come for one of my platoon to search and they said, it's you, Caroline, we've come for you. So um, I said, well, I suppose you'll want to search my um, my room and whatever then. Um, so I felt quite cocky because I thought there's nothing to hide. Yeah, they've got nothing on me. Yeah, so I felt quite cocky with it. Um, so we went across to where I was living and they went straight away to a photograph that was sitting uh, by my bed. It's a photo of my parents in a frame. And they went straight away, it was odd. They didn't look anything else. They didn't turn the bed open over. They didn't open the closet. They didn't look on any shelves. They went straight to this photo, turned it around, took the back off and tucked in between the frame. Yeah, and the photograph was a handful of letters. Now I'd never seen those letters. I had those letters read out to me during the interrogation. I'd never seen those letters. So those letters had been intercepted, yeah, from the mail. They had been stolen from the mail. They had been opened, they had been read and they had been used to not frame me because I was a lesbian, but they had been used as, as evidence. So I was very wrong-footed when I saw that. Um, just thought, what the hell is happening? Um, so we went back and I was questioned for hours at a time over three days, questioned, interrogated, two men, a woman sitting there just saying nothing, just watching me if I needed to go to the loo. She had to come to the loo with me. I couldn't pee or anything with the door shut. So it was very degrading. This woman was a corporal. 
it was very degrading being watched to pee, you know, by someone. Uh, all the way, say again? Three days, yeah. So from nine o'clock in the morning, break for lunch, all through the afternoon, into the early evening, and then again, so hours. I mean, the transcripts of the interviews went on for pages, pages and pages and pages, because all I said was no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment just all the way through I just so they kept you know what about these letters no comment yeah what did this 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 phrase suggest no comment so they were reading out and these letters were from my my, my lover yeah um, my partner in um in Norwich um so there was no doubt that these were love letters yeah, from her to me, there was absolutely no misunderstanding the meaning or whatever, but all I could say to it was no comment. And a couple of times I said, I've not seen those letters. Yeah, you say those letters are mine, but I've not seen them. I never received those letters. Yeah, if you have those letters, it's because they were stolen from me. Yeah, so that's what I would like to address. I would like to address the fact that these letters were stolen from me. Yeah, that these letters were intercepted from the Royal Mail, which I believe is a capital offence still. Yeah, <laughs> I think these letters have been stolen. Yeah, so of course they weren't interested in that. They kept on and on and on and on and on and on. Finally, um, they started, they produced a big pile of paper, which were my expense claims from travelling to see uh, my partner. Now, clearly, it was obvious now this person was a woman. Yeah, that was very obvious. This person was a woman. And at that time, the army get you, it was called the get you home scheme. So it meant that um, if you wanted to go and see your parents or a loved one or something, you had to give their name and you had to give their designation. And then you were given the authority to travel and get um, expenses to pay for, you know, flights and petrol and goodness knows what else. But remember then that homosexuality was illegal in the army. So I could never ever say, this is my partner. Yeah, this is my girlfriend, because that was wrong. So I had to say, in order to get money to go there. And I needed the money to go there because it was expensive getting from Ireland otherwise. Otherwise, you know, I would have had to pay for airfare and all the ferry and all of this. I couldn't have afforded to go on holiday. So um, I had just put that person's name and their surname, their, sorry, the initial and their surname. And I hadn't said anything about whether they were male or female, because I rather thought that would be the assumption, this must be a man. So I hadn't said anything. I was very conscious. Um, you know, I'm a Catholic, I'm honest. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I can't lie. I find that kind of really, you know, so, and I was very aware, what do I do here? Do I say I'm going to see my parents, but I'm not? But if I'm say I'm going to see my parents, that journey's allowed, and they they they'd give me a money for the ferry, and I could claim the mileage from going to my parents, and that would be more money than I'm actually need to go and see my my lover. That was my quandary, and I thought I can't do that. That's fraud. 
So this is the journey I'm making, but I want to have the money for it. So I'm just going to put their initial and their surname, their family name. And, you know, any assumption anyone makes about that, that's their assumption. I've not directly lied. So, yeah, so that was as close as I could get, could get to it. Yeah, you know, so I knew that was a bit of a fudge. It wasn't wholly honest, but I couldn't have the, the travel money anyway. So anyway, there they were with my expenses in front of them. And clearly I'm trapped in that lie now in the interview because we now know that this person, yeah, at this address that I've been going to is a woman. So therefore I've lied in order to claim travel expenses. Yeah, so that's what they did me for. I never ever admitted to being um, a lesbian, but they um, they courts martialed me and I was done. Ironically enough, the um, section in the Army Act is called 69. So I was done under section 69 of the Army Act. I know. How ironic. How ironic. You can't write this, can you? Section 69 of the Army Act for Conduct Unbecoming and Prejudice to the Good Order of Military Discipline. So that was that was about the sexuality that I hadn't um, hadn't admitted to. But I was also done for fraud in that I had obtained property, in other words, money for journeys that I wasn't fully entitled to. Yeah, so, and I was um, bussed down from Staff Sergeant. I was bussed down to Sergeant and I was um, posted in disgrace from Ireland. And um, at that time, I had actually thought about leaving the army and put my notice in. So I said, listen, um, can you just give me, yeah, if I put my notice in, I've got just a year or so left to serve. Can you give me that year? Give me the opportunity to try and, uh, you know, do some resettlements and whatever. So they said, yes, they said, you can't be a military policewoman. You've lost the rank of staff sergeant. So they, they sent me to the Women's Royal Army Corps Training Centre, which was kind of Dyke Central back then. <laughs> yeah. So they sent me there. That was my punishment posting. And, and uh, so then I spent a year at the WAC Training Centre, I looked after their weapons, I ran the armory for them, and I did various jobs there. Do you know, when I arrived there, it was quite funny because, um, you know, the gossip hadn't fully arrived. And so they knew that I was military police and they knew that I used to be special investigation branch. So, and they'd heard this story about me being, you know, posted in disgrace, but they thought it was a smokescreen. They thought it was a cover. They thought I was coming in to spy on them. Yes. Yeah, so my f yeah. So my first few months at the WIC training centre were quite hard because people didn't trust me. Yeah, they thought that I was uh, investigating. I was doing some sneaky beaky type undercover operation. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what? That last year, I um, I got me a leather jacket. I got me some 501s, I got me some Doc Martens, I had my hair cut short. I can remember the regimental sergeant major saying a couple of times, too short, and I'm going, why? She says, you know why. I say, no, tell me why. She says, well, it makes you look like, and I said, does it make me look like a butch dyke, ma'am? Does it? Yeah, well, oddly enough, that's what I'm getting sacked for. So, <laughs> that's why. So I was very out on the camp. I didn't care. 
I just didn't care. I was very out. So when I was um, off duty, I was stomping around in my docks and my leather jacket and all my badges. I was going down to London. I was partying. Um, I didn't care. So, yeah, that was great, in fact, that last year. Um, and again, just meeting some fantastic people in London um, through the campaigns and everything. Um, so I'm thinking in London, places like the Fallen Angel at Islington and um, clubs, uh, just, um, oh God, we used to go to Camden to um, various clubs. And of course, I went to the Gateway a few times. Just great. Just really did. So far from being um, punished, it was horrible leaving the army. It was really horrible. I hadn't planned on coming out um quite that way um but yeah at least i got to have a yeah fun time down in london so i did that last year and then i did came up to edinburgh and i've lived in edinburgh ever since well i am listening in fascination to this story because it so happens that my partner of 30 plus years was a staff sergeant in the United States Army uh -huh. and um, enlisted when it was still the Women's Army Corps. Yeah. You know, they went co-ed shortly after that. But yeah, it, yeah. It was still there. So, and I have heard, I, I lived in Montana for a little while and we would, the, the women from my town, Montana is so rural that you had to travel to see mm -hmm. each other in groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would go to another town, and there were what we called the military dikes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we heard all about the witch hunts. Yeah. And and that sort of thing, but I never actually talked to someone who was the subject. Yeah. yeah, not yeah, not personally. I tell you, you can probably still buy it um, in the US. There's a film about my 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 story. It's called um, The Investigator, and um, Helen Baxendale, an English um, actor, plays me in the film the investigator and you can buy it i think it's still on sale through blu-ray on on amazon so it's been discontinued on dvd here but you can watch it on youtube as well so you can watch it on youtube the investigator well, so a must see for us this evening <laughs> yes yeah so um Look for the investigator with Helen Baxendale, otherwise you'll get uh, a, another program, another film called The Investigator. The Investigator with Helen Baxendale, but it's on YouTube, it's great. That film, so um, after I'd left uh, the military, um, so this would be the 90s then, uh, and I was in Edinburgh. Now I found it very hard. I didn't think I would, but I did. I found it hard, not just um, leaving the military, and, you know, kind of resettling, but um, being accepted um, into work because people have some very strange ideas about what we do in the military. 
um, I was um, I was going for management positions and people were saying, well, you're not a manager. And I'm saying, mm, I am. I was a staff sergeant. And they're saying, well, yeah, that's not a manager. And I'm saying, well, yes, it is. Well, you don't have any managerial qualifications. I'm saying, well, yes, I do. You know, I've got these military qualifications, education for promotion. I've got my sergeant certificate. I've got my senior rank certificate. And they say, yeah, but it's not this, that and the other. And I'm saying, no, but it's it's the equipment. But they didn't have the skills to to think laterally and whatever. So they say, you can't manage people, you know. So I was being squeezed towards security jobs. And my heart really wasn't in it um, that much. Um, so um, it took me a while to find something that would engage me in the same way. I had a period of unemployment. Um, the other thing I was finding was in order to get a job, I was having to out myself because this conviction, this fraud conviction, that's not just a military conviction. That's you know, that's a that's a fraud conviction. So um, and fraud is one of those ones that doesn't really go away. You know, so despite the resettlement of offences, because it's about, you know, kind of character and integrity and everything, it never really goes away. So any job that requires any type of background check will find it. So I, I knew it was going to come up. So in order to mitigate the reason, the, the, the conviction, I would have to out myself and say, you're going to find a fraud conviction. Here's what it's about. Yeah, here's the story. You know, so I found then, um, so I was not getting jobs. Um, and I think at that time, there was still quite a large level of homophobia in place. So and I found myself, the jobs I wanted were not um, coming to me. Um, the jobs I could get were kind of very entry level and way beneath what I was trained and qualified to do. But, you know, we've all got to put some a crust on our table. So that's what I did. My relationship um, by this time had just imploded. And that was with all the stress during being interviewed and various other things. So it didn't survive that, which was a shame, which is why I was now living in Edinburgh. And um, so I was then in a relationship with a woman um, who is now a politician in the Scottish National Party, Joanna Cherry. Yes, so I was her girlfriend back then. <laughs> yeah, so we lived together in a house um, and she was just finishing her legal degrees at that point and embarking on her legal career. And I was scrapping around trying to find uh, some work. So again, our relationship was short-lived. We lasted about three, four years. And then because she was heading in one direction and I wasn't. Um, and I, I will own, um, it was me. I was very depressed by this time because I couldn't get any work. Um, and so I was probably quite difficult to be with. Um, plus also she was very driven and very single-minded in terms of her career. So there was a disconnect now. Um, so I felt uh, I felt a little resentful. Um, I felt that maybe she should be more supportive of me. Um, she felt she couldn't, you know, why couldn't I just pick myself up and just get on with it and stop moaning, <laughs> whatever. So it was what it was. Um, and we parted. Um, but um, 
the program makers came along, a guy called Chris, um, can't think of his family name now, he had done Death on the Rock, the panorama expose of the um, killing of the IRA suspects on Gibraltar. So he'd done that program. That was um, what he'd been directing. And um, he came and asked, he'd seen the story. I'd done a few interviews for the Guardian newspaper and other papers. He'd seen the story in the Guardian about being sacked. And he said, I'd like to do this um, as a program. And I'm not sure whether I want to do it as a documentary or as a, as a documentary drama. Um, he said, I'm not sure yet, but would you, would you be, would you come along and um, meet some colleagues and whatever? So I did that. And um, so Cheryl Crow was the woman that was involved. She was with a group called Crown Productions then. And Chris and Cheryl and the writer was, um, who did the, 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 the screenplay was um, Barbara Maitland. Barbara Maitland had written for Casualty. Um, and she'd written um, for lots of things. She's a she's a very um, very you know well renowned writer. She wrote she's written as well. The, so the last thing she's written is um, Waking the Dead. She's written a lot of those programs. That's a British um, forensic science drama. So um, I met them all and. Um, so then I worked with Barbara and we put together um, a screenplay and um, then we got it filmed. So all of that then took me then from um, kind of the early 90s right the way through to 1997. It was aired on British TV on Channel 4 in May 1997. So um, and so during that period, I'd had expenses and I'd had some some money towards the story. I had some money towards consultation fees and whatever. So I kept the wolf from the door. Um, and so once the program was finished, I traveled for three months just around Europe, give myself a break. And then I came back and I thought, right, time for my next career. Still not quite sure what I want to do. So I, um, I thought I might go back to university because um, I did a degree whilst I was in the army. I thought I might go back to university, but I thought I'll go down the job centre one last time. I'll go and see what's there. And I saw a job for health and social care support work. And I thought, what is this? So I phoned the very next day. They said, come and have a chat. So I went along and I had a chat and I never looked back. So that's what I've been working with in, in, within for since uh, 1997, I've been working within health and social care. I started as a support worker. I worked up and I became a manager, a care manager. Uh, then I became a health and social care trainer. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm a health and social care trainer and I'm training um, people within health and social care, but also corporate customers as well. I deliver training in, in, in first aid, in caregiving skills, in um, safeguarding, in um, legislation, health and safety, all of that kind of thing. Um, so that's me now. That's where I am now. That was the journey. You've had quite a variety of things come your <laughs> way, haven't you? I have, yeah. And um, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so where you are now, do you have any contacts with 
the lesbian or gay community? Oh, yeah. Well, where I am now is where we are now in Scotland with uh, the Scottish National Party and the Green Party forcing through the Gender Recognition Act. Um, so um, there, are no, there are no lesbian bars. There are gay bars, but of course they're not gay bars, they're queer bars. And when you go in the queer bars, um, there are trans-identified yeah, women in there. Um, or men, I should say. Um, there are trans women in there. Um, and the same with Pride as well, trans women everywhere. So there's, there's not a lesbian community as such now. So the younger lesbians don't appear to have a problem. They don't appear to be gender critical and they appear to be quite happy calling themselves queer. I'm not happy calling myself queer. I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian, I'm not queer. Yeah, I'm not some ephemerate kind of gay, yeah, gender non-binary, whatever. I'm a woman who loves women. Yeah, I'm comfortable in my skin. I am a lesbian, I'm a homosexual, but apparently we're not allowed to use those words anymore. We have to say that we're queer and whatever. Um, I'm meant to accept um, men, yeah, who call themselves lesbians. I'm meant to accept them into my dating pool and I don't. Yeah, if it's got a cock, I don't rock. Yes, yeah, quite simple. <laughs> it's quite simple. Yes. Yeah? So wait, that's not happening. So yeah, and this is how it is in the clubs now. Yes. Yeah? So um, it's very alienating. Um, the last time I went to Lesbian Pride, I stood with a group of lesbian activists. So we had the Labrys flag, you know, that very overt sign of lesbian solidarity. We had the Labrys flag. We were doing nothing other than standing with the Labrys flag. We weren't shouting any um, slogans. We weren't wearing anything. And this whole bunch of trans rights activists came and surrounded us in our faces. Yeah, and made it very unpleasant for us. Yeah, you know, trans rights matter and trans women are women. And so they had taken exception to our stance in, on lesbian solidarity. Yeah, we were doing nothing more than that. And yet that was enough for them to try and kick us off the march. We held our ground. Yeah, but it was very unpleasant. And that was the last time I went on a, on a Pride march. At that time, I went to the people now for years with Pride, I had been involved in the organising because I'd done security and I'd, I'd helped them kind of whatever. And I'd done all of that for nothing for years, for years and years and years. So I found the people that were organising and said, what's this about? And was told that it was the first time I'd ever heard the word. I was told I was a turf. <laughs> so. Well, that's I a was badge told of honor as far as yeah, concerned. Yeah, yeah, well, do you know, tedious, tediously explaining reality to fuckwits, that's what we call it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah, I'm Turfy McTurface and uh, very proud to be. But yeah, that was the first time I heard it. So yeah, you ask what the involvement is now. So I'm involved with a lot of gender critical feminist women, some of whom are lesbian, some of whom aren't. And that's my family now. 
and that's where I find the support and whatever. Um, I'm in touch still. I'm still in touch with Joanna. Um, and you'll know Joanna has done a tremendous, she's been so brave speaking up for uh, women um, with the SMP. It's cost her, her her role. It cost her her job. Yeah, but she's still very brave. Um, so I'm still in touch with Joanna and I'm in touch as well with a, a, a circle of women or lesbians. Um, and most of us are gender critical I would say there's very few of us that aren't and that's my family now and that's where I find my my strength and my solace so I, I live in an area where there there aren't even many lesbians much less lesbian feminist or gender critical yeah. lesbians my all my family is online because of that yeah i think that's part of why i started doing this podcast is to enlarge my circle <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so yeah and there's there is a lot online that's great and i kind of belong to a lot a lot of that it's a blessing and a curse isn't it the online community because you know in the twitter sphere it can be quite hateful and quite hard at times but then on Facebook, we've got our private groups, our closed groups, and that's great fun. Yeah, so um, so I'm in touch then um, and with form, my former partner, um, who just pure serendipity happens to be gender critical also. So we're in touch then um, with that wider sphere um, and and also meeting new women and making new friends as well is really is really very nice. And we had, I missed it because I was working, but we had a big protest here. <coughs> Excuse me, we had a big protest here on um, where are we now? Last week on the second. So when was that? Um, yeah, the the Tuesday was it? Um, no, the Wednesday. Um, yeah, so I we had a lot about it online. Yeah, no, it was great. It was fantastic. Yeah, and the speeches and all of the women, 400 odd women, you know, women won't waste, women won't waste. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what's happening in Scotland is horrible. And what Nicola announced today with the Gender uh, Recognition Act and everything, it's horrible. It's like they've taken off the handbrake and they've put it on top of a big steep hill and they've pushed the bloody thing. Yeah, so it is, you know, not just gaining momentum, it is running over us and there seems to be very little we can do to stop it. But what we can do is protest, yeah, um, and just keep protesting. So, um, so, yeah, very grassroots activism that we're involved in with the campaigning group for Women Scotland and Women Speak Scotland. And a lot of that then is like, so tonight I just finished, um, I'm gonna send a load of stuff out on Twitter to the Scottish government, a whole load of stuff about uh, saying, you know, um, and, and just on, not addressed to the Scottish government, but also to my, my Twitter audience. Uh, and I've just finished writing a whole, um, or a template letter that I'm gonna send out to all the Scottish MSPs and particularly the ones in Edinburgh. Yes, yeah, so and just say, listen, you know, you are our representatives, time to put your money where your mouth is and say so and that's all we can do. We, we have a sense 
um, that we are taking steps forwards, but then sliding backwards. You know, so there has been some momentum in the UK. We had, of course, Kira Bell winning at the Tavistock. Kira Bell winning that. And then we had Sonia, um, what was her name? Appleby, one of the councillors. She won her claim against the Tavistock. Yeah, of course, we had Maya Forstater. Yeah, and her kind of... So we've had... And so the next big case we've got a challenge um we're challenging in terms of and we won of course the right to, for women to be able to say that they want um in the event of a, a forensic examination for rape that they are allowed to choose the sex of the person examining them we won that that was hard hard fought for but we won that um we've got um we're challenging at the moment we're challenging to say um and i think that's going to court to make sure that data is captured um and um disaggregated along the lines of sex and not gender and particularly when it comes to crimes yes yeah, so we're we're kind of saying you know these are not our crimes and it's really important that that so that's another um strand there and of course, Marion Miller, she's going to court. Yeah, this yes, because of threatening ribbons and some tweets and whatever. So Joanna's defending her, um, and she's played a real blinder there um, because she's challenging on the grounds of her European human rights. Yeah, because the the EHRC is altogether a more robust piece of evidence than the Equality Act here in the UK. So, so Joanna is um, challenging on that. So fingers crossed um, that Marion will, I'm hoping they'll kick it out and say no case to answer, but uh, we shall wait and see. So that's us. So in amongst that, whilst we're living in, I suppose it's like the Chinese curse, isn't it? May you live in interesting times. <laughs> yeah, we are certainly living in interesting times. Yes, and yeah, and it can feel, at times I feel quite worn out with it and quite beaten down, and yet at other times I feel tremendously, um, yeah, tremendously um, engaged and excited and energised, yeah, because, and it reminds me of my younger self, because I loved a good protest, yes, <laughs> so, and it's so nice because um, that's what went for a lot of us, the protests. We got comfortable, yeah, and we stopped protesting, yeah, and now there's something that we can get our teeth in, yeah, so it starts kind of going again. So that's where I am. So, yeah, my allegiances are a little mixed. I would like to be um, involved with the gay community, but because they seem to have drunk the Kool-Aid, yeah, so they they don't want to be involved with me. And that's sad. That is sad. Um, so but I'm still involved in a lesser way with my um, my feminist sisters. Yeah. And brothers there. OK, so that's what I'm doing. And so politically, that's my activism. And most of it is um, so we have WhatsApp groups, but we also have meetings with Zoom and we also go out. Um, I've got stickers and I've got slates, so I've been sticking. I travel all around Scotland, so I've been putting slates all over Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> and stickers and ribbons wherever I go. I just leave a little, yeah, a little kind of, 
yeah, memento. Women, women is not a costume and women won't wish and whatever. So, and there's a few of us doing that all over Scotland. And it's great because we know that we're sparking a greater debate. Um, at my work, one of my colleagues just, um, and she must have seen, I must have left a sticker on a desk or something. She said, Caroline, what's this? I thought, uh-oh. Um, but I told her and she said, she didn't say anything, but she, she went away. And then the next day she came and she said, I've hardly slept a wink last night. I've been up all night. I've been looking at some of those things that you were saying. She said, I can't believe what's happening. She said, you must. So there you are. So, and I just, and I keep saying every time that we feel disheartened, I keep saying, if just one person is woken up by what you're doing, and if they wake up just one other person, yeah, it's slow, but it's steady. Yeah, and that's that's what it would take. Yeah. It so. sounds like we've, we've gone back to the consciousness raising um, phase yes of the 70s totally yes um yeah. just just getting the message out and because so many women and others don't know what's going on they don't they don't and they say oh just be kind you know this is our socialization and conditioning into being kind and they say, oh, but these poor trans people and they might kill themselves. And would it hurt you to call them she and her? And, you know, they're, they're just trying to live their lives. And you're going like, but you're missing the big point here. If the Gender Recognition Act comes in and if anyone can say that they're a woman uh, and we mustn't for one minute imagine that predatory men won't use this because they already are. Yeah, this is already happening. It's happening in plain sight, yeah. And I just feel, I feel that us lesbians, we're like the wee canaries in the coal mine. Yeah, we're singing our wee heads off, and but nobody's listening. And we've been right royally thrown under the bus by the groups that are meant to be campaigning for us, groups like Stonewall um, here in the UK. I know, yeah, I belong to the LGB Alliance now, so I've joined that. Yeah. I so uh, another woman. Yeah. Belong to the LGBT. Yeah. And they're just yeah. getting started here in the states. Yes. Yes. Um, they are. Um, what I what I hate is the fact that we are we're not aligned to, but our um, our protests are aligned to. Um, the far right, not that we have any association with them. Um, and I've been aware of that, that they are aligned, they are aligning themselves to us. Yeah, and they are coming in on the back of our protests. And I wish they wouldn't because it makes it so easy for the trans activists now to shut us out, down by calling us, you know, far right and, you know, fundamental Christian and, you know, kind of proud boy. You saw that with the protest outside the Wee Spa in um, California, how, how that was um, hijacked by the... Uh, by the, the far right, the Proud Boys and whatever. I never thought I would see the day where, um, yeah, so where I am more in common um, and the people that are supporting the stance that we take as feminists, 
in the UK are the Tories. And I never ever thought I would be aligned with the Tories, with the Conservative Party. <laughs> so I, I understand, believe me. Yes, yes. So these really strange days. I mean, I suppose in America it was kind of like Biden. And you're thinking, you know, yeah, great, we've got Biden now. And then what's the first thing he does? Start pushing through, you know, gender recognition and, you know, I so. Know. I, I was totally horrified when I realized what was in the Equality Act. Yes. Um, yeah. It's, it's devastating for women and girls. It totally destroys Title IX. Our, Exactly. Yeah. Sports. Yes. Um, it's, it's just yeah. horrendous. And yeah. I have been an active voting Democrat all of my life. Although I've always considered myself left of the Democratic Party. Now, mm -hmm. I, I'm just a gender critical lesbian feminist. Yes. <laughs> I don't call myself yes. a, a yes. Democrat anymore. Same here. I, I used to be Labour and then um, the Labour Party kind of failed in Scotland, but also the Labour Party have been very slow to support women's rights. And so then I was, because Joanna was SMP and a few of her friends, we were all SMP. Yeah, this brave party. This was before Nicola was um, the uh, First Minister. Um, so when Donald Dewar and John Smith were, or John Smith was Labour, but when Don, Don, Donald Dewar was um, the First Minister, when it was a party to be reckoned to, Alex Salmond, yeah, um, so, so back then, yeah, I was very kind of pro-Scottish um, National Party. Uh, so I've been horrified. I've been absolutely horrified. And then the only other place I might have gone um, organically would be green. Yeah, but you know, here they are, they're, they're even worse than the Scottish National Party. So I find myself politically homeless at the moment, yeah? So the last election was very interesting. It was the first time ever that, so I, I went to the ballot box, but I spoiled my vote. Um, I spoiled my vote on the two counts because I just felt politically homeless, but I wrote on my ballot, ballot paper, I wrote women won't wish and you do not expect my ex if you do not respect my sex so I wrote that on my paper and whatever I made my protest but you know I know that would have registered as a spoiled vote um yeah so yeah that was the first time ever in all of my years that I went and I didn't vote and so that's where we are now yeah it's a strange state of affairs it is and um I, I don't know. It, it, it seems that the UK is ahead of the states on this, which is kind of backward. <laughs> it used to be the other way around. It did, yes. Second wave. Yeah. But this, this time, UK is where the action is. Turf <laughs> Island, that's what they call us. <laughs> Turf Island. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, I, I think things are, are going to heat up more here in the States when the word gets out about Washington State and um, California and Maine and the women's prisons. Oh, um, yeah. I think, I hope that that will 
wake some people up. I don't know. You know, uh, the, the, the women in prison are some of the most vulnerable women that exist. And Indeed. Some, some people don't care much about them. No, no, they don't. You know, and that's what upsets me about this third wave feminism that goes on and on about intersectionality. You know, so in as far as, you know, black and trans and whatever, but somehow class, class doesn't get a look in there. So poor working class women are not getting a look in there. So uh, these rules are being set. I find in the United Kingdom as well, the trans rights uh, movement is very middle class. It is very, very middle class. Yeah. Well, and that, that makes sense. Transitioning is very expensive. Yes, yes. So that that would that would naturally follow. Um, yeah, a lot. Although they can get it on the NHS, but there's a lot of waiting. So you know, a lot of them are buying their their tea and their their puberty blockers and everything. They're getting them online. And you're right, it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'm one of those myopic Americans once again, <laughs> because here you have to pay for everything. Yes, yes. You know, and, yeah. and I think that that's one of the reasons why I think that that's the thing that gives me hope in a very awful kind of way. But I think that the lawsuits that are going, to, they're coming. Yeah, here. already, yes, and, and yeah. That there's, yeah. there's going to be a big wave of them. And I think that's yeah. what will slow it down. Yeah, here. I hope so. I just, my heart aches, particularly for the women, particularly for these young lesbians. I see these young lesbians with their breasts cut off, you know, at 14, 15, no. you know, and they're there posing with their scars with their womanly hips, with their deep voices, you know, they're never going to have that back. And already we're seeing these people who wished they hadn't, but now it's too late. And I think it's criminal. I think it's criminal that we rush to affirm instead of uh, a, a careful, mindful watch and wait. Yeah, whilst we explore, you know, a lot of these women, there is no doubt they're autistic or they're lesbians, yes. So, and what makes me laugh when they talk about us being, you know, anti-homosexual, um, homophobic and whatever, the trans rights movement is the greatest threat to homosexual, homosexuality there has ever been. Yeah, because you cannot be a girly boy or a boyish girl. Now you have to be the other. You have to trans to the other. Yeah, and if, that's not reinforcing harmful stereotypes. And if that's not homophobic, I, I don't know what is. I don't either. I don't yeah. either. It is just down the line sexual stereotyping. Yeah. I don't understand how, how did we get <laughs> from, from the seventies to this? I yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I don't. Yeah, queer theory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but That's... they are picking up Dworkin and Daly, and I 
I've been listening. I don't, I have a vision problem, so I have a hard time reading, but I've been listening um, on YouTube to the Women's Human, Women's Human Rights Campaign. Oh, yes, yes, they're great. Yeah. Sheila Jeffries. Yes, yes, yeah, Sheila Jeffries. I've met her. She's amazing. And yeah. a lot of others that um, give me hope. Yes. Yeah, the same here. And that's all we can have, isn't it? Yeah, it's very easy. Um, friends just recently on WhatsApp, a couple of friends, the women saying um, how tired they are and how defeated they feel. And that's all we can do is we can reach out to each other and we can lift, up, lift each other up. And that's what we have to do. Yeah. So, yeah. So extending our networks. Yeah. And that's what you've done today is lift up all of our listeners. And Good. I want to really uh, thank you and tell you how much I appreciate your time and your words of wisdom. Uh, <laughs> and, and especially that story about being in the military. Yeah. I'm telling you that that is a piece of history. Yeah that is is so important for us to look back on and know that we yeah. have made some gains oh it's yeah not, bad, you know? not at all not but at all we do have a lot to work on <laughs> we do but slowly slowly yeah little steps we'll get there we'll get there in 10 20 30 years you know we'll be looking back and thinking well they were interesting times <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and guess who was on the right side of history? Oh, that will be us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Beth. It's been an absolute pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Lesbian Echoes. Be sure to check in with us next time as we bring the stories of lesbians' lives to you. Mm -hmm.